If you can see how your electricity use compares to someone else, or if you see somebody else using less trash, you'll want to copy them. We all naturally, we naturally all compete with each other and we naturally all copy each other. And they're the powerful drivers of what get people, money is not even a very powerful driver to get people to act. But if you can just see like how you compare to your neighbours, even though you won't be consciously maybe competing, you'll be like, oh, we did a bit worse than them. We better do better because we're social animals and it's the social animal that we need to go to to drive change. Why, hello there, friends. Welcome to Let's Give a Damn. I'm your host, Nick LaPara. I aim to share the stories of amazing damn givers from all over the place, coming from all walks of life, so that you'll be inspired to give more dams than ever before. I just returned from a trip to Chicago for the annual Clinton Global Initiative event. What a trip. They invited me to come spend some time with them, and I got to record podcast conversations with four young leaders who are doing incredible work all over the world. And I got to spend a few more minutes with the amazing Chelsea Clinton. Those conversations will be released throughout the month of November. You're going to love them. I can't wait to share them with you, but more on that later. Today, I get to introduce you to a very special lady, Katie Patrick. Katie is an environmental engineer and software designer who lives in Silicon Valley. She is freaking brilliant. We talk in our conversation about the value action gap we talk behavior mapping, we talk feedback loops, we talk about all things environmentalism, we talk about the public disclosure of data, which is fascinating by the way, and we talk about her new book, How to Save the World. Stick around to the end of this podcast to find out how you can get your copy today, or very soon rather. After hearing her share her story, vision, and mission, I think you're going to want to get your own copy as soon as possible. I shall not delay any longer. Let's get right into my conversation with the founder of Hello World Labs and the author of the brand new book, How to Save the World, Katie Patrick. I'm so excited to have my new friend, Katie Patrick, on the line with us today. Katie, how are you? I'm great. Thanks, Nick. Thank you so much for joining me. Where are you right now? Where are you joining me from? I am in my kitchen in San Francisco. Nice, nice. How long have you been in San Francisco? How long have you lived there? About five years. Okay, and, and where before that? Uh, well, I've spent a little bit of time in Silicon Valley, which if you're familiar yeah. with the area, it's about an hour's drive mm -hmm. south. Uh, I also stayed with my dad in New Jersey for a year, um, but mainly Sydney, Australia, and before that I grew up in Melbourne, Australia. Okay, okay, good. Good. Well, let's let's dive right in. Before we get into, we're going to talk about books that you've written and a book that's coming out. We're going to talk about your work, which I I find what you're doing super fascinating. I'll send as many people as will go to your website just to check out all the amazing work that you're doing through writing and through your companies and through podcasts and all all the stuff. But before we even start there. I'd love to, I always start the conversations this way because I think it's a very key way for these types of conversations to begin. And that is, I'd love to learn a little, a little bit about you as much as, as much or as little as you're willing to tell really, but I, I, I'm, tr I'm looking for clues as to how you became who you are today. So go back as far as you want to, um, whether that's all the way back to the beginning or two years ago, as far back as you want to. And um, tell us about yourself, uh, the people, places, and things that shaped you into who you are today. So I was actually born in Chicago, but my parents are Australian. 
So I grew up in, uh, was raised and grew up in Australia. Uh, and my mother's a, a German immigrant and a very uh, creative person. And my grandparents were both professional creatives. My grandmother was a fashion designer and my German grandfather was a graphic designer. Back in the day where you had to draw, graphic design wasn't just doing everything on Photoshop. They actually had to draw the fonts and they had to actually hand paint the billboards. And my grandmother being a fashion designer, they had to illustrate all of the, hmm. all of the, the models. So I grew up immersed in uh, design, in art and design, in drawing, technical drawing. Uh, I really loved drawing and sewing as well. And I was pretty bullied at school. I didn't have many, many friends because we were, I mean, when you're kind of a person who likes uh, a lot of like art and creativity, what was cool at the time was being into sport and I was really terrible at sport. Um, So my entire childhood was really being immersed in the creative process. Uh, and then as I moved into high school, I became really fascinated with science, but I never lost this um, this energy I had for design and the way things looked. Mm. And I remember as a child when I used to look at the cities, I would never understand why they looked so ugly. Like I couldn't understand why a train station had dirt and soot smeared on it or why freeways didn't have flowers and gardens on them. So some of my earliest memories were looking at the urban landscape and thinking, why don't all of the grown-ups make it look beautiful? Why don't they cover it with trees and gardens and art? Then I went and studied environmental engineering and I never lost this thing inside me that wanted to make the world be beautiful, to look beautiful and to be really, and I was really disturbed by things that were polluting, that were environmentally devastating, that were unethical, that deeply disturbed me every time I would hear about it. Uh, and then in studying environmental engineering, uh, I moved into, into property because I wanted to build green buildings. I wanted to build cities that had orchards in them and uh, buildings that were like skyscrapers that were adorned in ferns and flowers and, and greenery. And you can see some architects actually build, um, not, not so much build, but more uh, design, design these types of futuristic eco cities. So I ended up going into green building with this idea in my mind of this kind of like crazy wild utopian eco city of this this world that I wanted to go to um but then when I was in my 20s and getting stuck into corporate sustainability and I had a job as an environmental uh green building engineer you start to learn about how the corporate world works and the and the and the business world and kind of I couldn't I guess I wanted to just like snap my fingers and build this incredible world but it it's actually quite hard to create that kind of change you can't just be like, let's build an amazing eco city. Let's do it. So I started to study, like, how do we actually get this to, to happen? So I, I moved out of environmental engineering and then I started a media company because I thought we really need to rebrand sustainability to make it beautiful. So I made this kind of like wired kind of Vanity Fair style magazine because back then being green was like very uncool. So I wanted to make it like really cool and really fun. So I did that through my 20s and that went, that was um really good and then I everything started to move more online that was when um, sort of Twitter and Facebook were launching so I started learning computer programming and tried to move out of print onto online and then I moved to Silicon Valley Uh, and it was still with the same sort of theme was like how can we use computers and the internet to make change happen to try and build this this world Uh, and then through that process I started to realize that there just wasn't we couldn't get the environmental data that we wanted. Like if I wanted to get 
a feed of how much electricity I was using or how much garbage I was using or how much water I was using or what the pollution levels were in the local lake. All of this information, I just couldn't get it from a computer programming point of view. I couldn't actually feed it into an app that I wanted to build. Uh, And that really sort of... um, like perked up that really piqued my imagination because I could you could do it in all these other ways in computing you know if you wanted to get feeds in for like you know how many Facebook users you have or um, you know you wanted to interface with a with a payment gateway there are all these computing um, utensils that you could use as a programmer but when it came to environmental data there's just not nothing but almost nothing it really was way behind what was going on in Silicon Valley and that really excited me of how we could use this data to catalyze change, to drive people to change. And I became incredibly fascinated by that connection. And that was really the seed of what uh, created all this work that I've done in terms of, um, in terms of game design and, and storytelling, data visualization, how to use data to create change and what, um, and I've put all that into this book, How to Save the World. So that's what I'm, that's what I'm watching now, the book. So that's, um, I hope I got that into a little nice nutshell. Didn't take too long. No, that was a nice nutshell. But, but A, y- you explaining, you know, your, your parents and grandparents kind of explains, in, in my mind, a lot, of way, a lot of the reason why you are, you know, if I'm just looking at what they did and what you, the, the kind of things they put you around and now what you're doing, there's a lot of correlations there. But also, um, I have a million questions and I'm trying to figure out where to start because I, I knew a lot of this about you because I had, you know, obviously done a little bit of research getting ready for this, but it's so fascinating. I, I don't feel like I'm pretty heavily involved in the social impact world, in in the uh, kind of startup Silicon Valley space, in environmentalism and conversations of that nature. And not a lot of people are talking about it from, I mean, it's happening. It's not like you're, you know, you're the first and only person, but there are very few people talking about it from a data standpoint, from, you know, actually having, getting these, you use words like gamify and, you know, really making sure these numbers and these, like we're able to see these things because that really does inform us. If we know exactly what's going on, good and bad in our world, based on data and numbers and like actual, like real things that we can look at, it's going to affect how we live, right? And so how are you doing that right now? So you're, you have a book, which we're going to, in a few minutes, we're going to get into, but how are you doing that currently um, in your work? How are you kind of this, all this conversation about data and uh, stuff like that? How, how are you doing that in your work today? Well, I just wanted to add one little thing that I, um, I, I left out of what I said before yeah, was please. that once I became... Are really fascinated and obsessed by this connection with measurability and that creating change, I realized I had to go and study the academic evidence to prove it because I had a lot mm. of ideas and then I thought, well, if I'm going to try and get a government to give me a big chunk of money, you know, like a million or five million, you know, something to do a really big project, I'm not going to be able to get a big chunk of funding like that unless I find the academic studies. So I went in this long process of gathering the evidence and finding out who the academics were that study that. And the thing is, it, it's true, right? If you just show people the numbers in a way that's easy for them to understand, not bombarding them with a whole lot of facts and figures, but just explaining it, showing the right. numbers in a very simple way, like, for example, restaurant grade cards, A, B or C, that's a way of communicating a measurement mm-hmm. about how healthy a restaurant is. But it's in a very, it's in a very simple way. So... Uh, there's just case study after case study that shows that this um, 
that this actually works in terms of driving change. Um, but your question was about what am I doing apart from um, writing the book and putting it all together so people sort of understand this way of this way of thinking. Uh, I started working on one project called Zero Wasteify, which was uh, actually measuring the amount of trash that a garbage uh, truck picks up. So let me ask you, Nick, how much trash do you think you made last month? How many pounds? I don't know. We try to use very little. We use about one. We're big recyclers and we've tried to not use as much trash. And so we use one medium-sized garbage bag per week. Mm -hmm. um, but I don't know. I don't know how many pounds that would be. I don't I don't okay. know. <laughs> well, you, you're ahead of most people by knowing basically the volume. But basically, I take it that you've probably never seen a chart, like a basic graph of how much waste you use per month over a year. No, hell no. No, never. No, Nowhere. Nobody in the world has. Nobody has ever seen that. So you can see um, your bank account statement. You can chart maybe how much you weigh. Uh, you could get perhaps a medical device that could monitor um, your heart rate or something like that. Uh, but in terms of something like trash, which has an enormous environmental footprint, we just don't know these numbers. So how can we change? How can we give people a smiley face or say you did great this week? Uh, or like how are you doing compared to your neighbours, right, if we don't actually measure it? So I started working on a project to install load sensors on the arm of the garbage truck so it could get that data and then we could just send people reports and you could look up online, oh, that's how much trash I made this week. Really simple, right, just showing the data to people. Uh, I'm working on another design that uh, takes people who apartments and puts a digital leaderboard in the foyer of the apartment that ranks the apartments in energy use from the, uh, the least energy using to the worst energy using. So it's not actively shaming people for using too much energy. All it is doing is disclosing the data and then ranking the people. So you can be like, hey, why am I in the bottom 10th percentile in all my apartment buildings? I better like, you know, not be doing so badly and turn off some more lights, turn the heater down a little bit. Uh, that's another way of using this uh, data. Another one I've been working on is called Urban Canopy, which is getting thermal um, photography, applying a thermal camera, which is those cameras that just capture heat. And yeah. It kind of looks, like a, looks like a rainbow on an aircraft. And then you fly the aircraft over a city and you can see where the hot spots are. So, again, it's getting data of surface temperature. So you can see a car park gets, like, really, really hot. Um, but a forest is quite cool. So all this heat from the concrete and the asphalt makes the whole city get hot. It can be actually up to 10 degrees hotter than the forested area. And that means that uh, people start getting sick. It creates more air pollution. And it also spikes the electricity grid because people have to use twice as much air conditioning because there's all this not enough trees and all this concrete, right? So with the whole concept of let's just show people the data, design it in a way that's really consumable, um, and then the change just kind of happens naturally, uh, this project to sort of map this, what's called the urban heat island, the hot spots of a city, and then you can compare land parcel to land parcel. Like why is your house, your property, hotter than the one next to you? And you can give it a score, right? You can be like, oh, well, I got an 8.6 out of 10. Uh, and so-and-so got a 5.2 because your house has um, maybe not as many trees as theirs. So you can be like, huh, I see what I need to do. I just got to plant a couple of trees. This data really drives drives uh, action. Yes. 
Uh, I, I mean, that's I, a couple. That's just a couple. I mean, I've got a, a few other concepts uh, I'm working on, but they're the ones that I've made the most progress. No, in. this is this is really fascinating because, like, I'm not a numbers guy. Uh, I, I I despised math in school, so like, data is important for me. But like you said, I don't know where to get it, and so I've I've come up with a few things just very simply in my life where I can measure. Uh, you know, for instance, I'm always playing a game with myself. You know, I, I mentioned the trash. Like, we try to just use one small it's not even medium it's a small it's a small trash can one trash can per week and so all of our neighbors are putting out their humongous trash can every week and we only have to put we only put ours out once a month even though it comes every week because we don't it's and it's not even full when we do put it out once a month or like last month again i don't know how to measure water being used you know like the meter or whatever but i do know how much my bill costs right and so last month it was like 26 dollars or something for a month for our water and so all month long, I was paying more attention to it, asking the kids to use less water. Don't turn your sink on when you're brushing your teeth. Don't put it on all the way. Just It can just trickle out. And so this month, after a month of very consciously thinking about it, like I just got our new bill and it was $13.11. And so we were able to cut off $10, um, almost 50% of our bill um, just by being aware of it. And so that's an example of data. The data was really a simple dollar amount. It was, again, I don't know how many gallons of water that represents. I just know I wanted to see if we could get less than $26. And we did. We, we cut it almost in half. So data does do that. When you, if you're able to show somebody, even in a simple dollar amount, like, do you want to be spending that much on money? Or, or do, you, do you want to see if you can spend less on it, which means you're using less water, less, less electricity, less energy for your home, less trash in the trash bins? Um, I've been already kind of, I guess, gamifying that whole system in my house for years now, just trying to get less and less and less. So I love that you're doing these different things to... Uh, I think the fascinating one was the the first one you talked about getting this kind of sensor on the arm of the trash truck. That's that's really fascinating. So let's let's talk about let's talk about your book then because a lot of all of this is in the book. All of this work that you're doing. I have other questions that we'll get to, but tell me, tell us about how to save the world. Well, what I wanted to say about that example of the cutting down the water use in your family, and uh, that's great that you that you did that. Um, and congratulations for having the initiative and you know the drive to make it happen. But that's called a, a feedback loop of data, right? So the feedback loop, if you're getting once a month report, right, your feedback loop has a, a latency of 30 days a month. So once a month, you're getting yep. the data back. And so the, the real power in getting these systems to work is closing the gap in this feedback loop. So having no feedback loop means nothing. You have absolutely no idea. So that's kind of what trash is like now. We really have no idea. Electricity, we get a pretty good idea. Water is a little bit behind, but it's catching up. Uh, can you imagine if you had a feedback loop of like once a year, like how hard that would be to get so motivated hard. if you only find out? Uh, if you once a month, that's a little bit better. But what if you could see it in real time all the time? Like what if you had a little screen on your wall under the light switch, um, maybe like in the kitchen or in the foyer, and it was actually showing you the number, maybe the cumulative number for the month and also like what was happening right now. And then it had uh, a colour used to it, right? So you've got these three really powerful principles, right? One is the disclosure of the data that you can actually see it 
in real time all of the time. So as soon as you imagine that, you turn the tap on, you turn the shower on, you're like, bam, you know what it is, right? Yep. You won't do it by half. You'll get it down even more. You know, you'll be able to really interact with this um, with this data. Uh, the second one is comparison to people around you. So mm. in addition, your little screen could show you sort of where you are in a percentile compared to everyone in your neighborhood, right? You could be like, yes, we're like in the top 1%. Look how sure. well we're doing. And there's like a smiley face. So that really drives people because we're all social beings. We're very driven by how we socially compare to everybody else. Uh, and the third one is color. So if it's like if you're doing badly, it might come up like red, you know. And uh, if you're doing well, you know, kind of like a, um, you know, those fire fire hazard signs, how they right, have yeah. a color, like a dial. You know, you just show color because yep. we don't need to think when we see color. We just, you know, like a traffic light, you just know what it is without needing to think. So applying color. So if you just apply those three principles, you've just got this like powerhouse system for driving change. Um, but it all comes back to reducing the feedback loop on the data. So you've got the data like inside the home, um, but then you've got bigger issues as well, like uh, like bigger scale issues, like how much green space there is in a whole city or what is the traffic flow for an entire for an entire city or the health data or the air pollution data. We can do this not just for our own environmental footprint but for looking at the entire system. So basically like the world's our oyster for what we can do with this stuff. We've hardly even started and it's really, really exciting. Let's let's riff on this for a second because I'm a thousand percent into everything you just said. I want to make that happen as soon as possible because there are other people like me and you that are already doing it right. But you're you're. I love that you really articulated and defined the feedback loop. And yes, I get all of my data, whether it's electricity or water or all these different data points, I get them, you know, once a month and how much you, you just pointed out and just, you know, displayed by giving us this picture of like getting it in real time. So here's the problem though. You and I live in a country that for the most part doesn't seem to give a shit about getting to that place. We still have a huge number of people in our country that don't believe you know, climate change is a real thing or don't see, so I live in Nashville, Tennessee, which is a, you know, of all the cities and towns and places around me, it's, you know, more on the progressive side of things. There are more people here that care about the environment, this, that, and the other. But even here, I mean, like I said, every single week, these people are putting out their humongous trash can and it's overflowing with trash. So every week they're doing that. Or, you know, I li also live in a city where there's humongous pickup trucks and, you know, that are just, just polluting, uh, you know, my city more and more. And they're not really thinking about being environmentally friendly or, you know, em environmentally progressive on these ideas. And so I love what you're saying. And I'm naturally more of a realist Maybe that's a bad way to say it, but I'm I, just for the sake of this conversation, I'm naturally more of a realist than a than an optimist. In that, like, how far out is are we from that actually happening, or are we going to destroy the Earth before that actually comes to place? Like, kind of talk about that because I think you seem more optimistic about this than I am, and you're obviously like in it, like you're making these things happen, you're coming up with these ideas, and you can actually do it because of the the your engineering background and all of that. I'll stop talking so that you can so that you can convince me that we can actually make this happen. Ah, right. Well, there's a lot of lot of stuff uh, in that in that question. Um, 
But I want to start with uh, the the concept of getting people to care about the environment yes. as the most direct way to create measurable change. And it's this phenomenon called the value action gap, and it's also known as the information deficit hypothesis. And it's one of the, I've got it right up the front of my book called The Biggest Mistake in really big letters, right? And I put it as, it's immediately after the foreword, right? Because I think it's one of the most important concepts to understand if you want to yes. start changing the world. And we all get stuck into it, right? I didn't learn it until maybe maybe five years ago. So I spent 15 years as a professional environmental person before I figured this out. Uh, and it basically goes like this. If you get uh, a bunch of people, you get 100 people, and you, um, you test them as to how much they know, care, and act, I think those three things, how much they know about it, how much they care about it, and what behaviours they do, and then uh, you gather that data and then you um, go through a process of educating them about climate change. You might get them to watch a documentary, they watch a lecture, you teach them about it, teach them about all of the terrible things that are going to happen, um, and then you test them afterwards. Okay, the, the person's education has gone way up. They suddenly know so much more about climate change than they did. Their emotional concern has gone way up. They really, really care about it. But then you track the actual behaviours that help them reduce their CO2 emissions, no change at all. And this gets done over and over. The study is able to be repeated yeah. over and over again for all different sorts of things. Think of it about smoking. How many people know everything that's wrong with smoking but they still keep smoking or they know everything that's wrong with being unfit or being overweight and I find it really hard to change. This thing, this idea that we need to educate people, get people to care, and that is the main mechanism that drives change uh, is flawed. It does work for some people. And people like you and me, it works for kind of some people, but not for most people. So taking this other approach, this behavioural science approach and using um, the way, in terms of looking at people, you've got to look at people through their social relationships, which is how we compare to other people, which is how the data comes into it. If you can see how your electricity use compares to someone else, or if you see somebody else using less trash, you'll want to copy them. We all naturally... We naturally all compete with each other and we naturally all copy each other. And they're the powerful drivers mm. of what get people. You know, money is not even a very powerful driver to get people to act. But if you can just see like how you compare to your neighbours, even though you won't be consciously maybe competing, you'll be like, oh, we did a bit worse than them. We better do better because we're social animals and it's the social animal that we need to go to to drive change through this um, copying. It's called uh, imitation. Just, that's what it's called in the literature, mm. social imitation uh, and social comparison, which we use the data for, then we've got a really, um, that is what really drives people to change. But the environmental message itself is actually an incredibly weak driver. So this thing, how people are so, people don't care, people don't care, don't worry about that at all. It's like, it, don't worry about it. Worry about how you can create a cultural trend and get people to copy it, like with fur, you know, like that was a really, really successful campaign in stopping fur, right? Yeah, yeah. Once something takes traction in a community, we all just basically copy the people around us. So you need to focus on getting something to take traction and getting people to copy other people. Uh, and then it's just a um, it's just a process that you need to go through it. And we've had wins. Like, I mean, the environment has had win after win after win, you know. I mean, it's also had a lot of losses as well. Uh, but if you look at air pollution, I mean, air pollution used to be like a disaster. Like it was really, really bad. 
And then we had the catalytic converter that came through in the 50s and we had air pollution, the clean air legislation. And now air pollution, I mean, in America, it's considered, you know, in Australia, the best in the world. Uh, forest deforestation is actually starting to slow down. I mean, since the 90s, it's actually, I mean, it's still happening. I'm not saying it's over, but it's not at its peak rate that it was in the, in the 90s. I mean, in most developed countries, the carbon dioxide emissions are actually going down, you know, because all the um, kind of the appliances that we use and the machinery is more efficient, the power plants are more efficient. Uh, not that climate change isn't a problem, but the upward momentum of destruction we really actually cross the other side of that and that's really starting to slow and all this effort that people have been putting in for the last 20 years is now starting to starting to pay off. Um, well, there's a few things to answer the question. Did I answer, did I answer all of it? You actually answered a lot of <laughs> questions in my mind. That, that was a super helpful because I am a, I'm way more education. Like I, I'm, I love to read. I love to learn about the history of this, that, or the other. And I'm always looking, I'm a very solutions-oriented person. So when I find a solution for X, you know, X, Y, or Z problem, I spend a lot of my time, and now I'm understanding, you know, based on what you just shared, more time than I should, trying to educate people otherwise, right? Like I'm trying to buy, you know, facts and stories and history and things that I know about a certain thing versus like what you're saying is show them, show them what it looks like because you're very right. Like we are very com competitive by nature and we want, we all want to be better. And when we see it displayed in such a practical way right in front of us, we're more prone to do that thing versus just, you know, a bunch of, you know, knowledge being thrown on us. It's fascinating. Very, very yeah, fascinating. And, and I mean, just, just think about it. Like say, imagine you go to, a, um, I actually wrote this story in the book, but I think I ended up not putting it in um but my friend I've got this really crazy friend called uh Justina she probably doesn't want me to call her crazy she's kind of wild right and she tells me this story about how once in the 90s there was this dress-up party right and so she gets dressed up in a pink tutu and um big black Doc Martens and puts on this crazy puts her hair in pigtails and her friend goes as a green monster he gets this big green monster costume and they're really excited to go to the fancy dress party they get to the fancy dress party and they realize it's not actually a fancy dress party it's a get dressed up party and everyone's just wearing like it's like a cocktail party with like everyone's wearing like black dresses and stilettos and they're just like <laughs> oh my god holy shit what have we done the humiliation of turning up to the party in fancy dress when uh it's really just a black cocktail dress um, party. But anyway, my friend's pretty funny and I think she had a good night in the end. Anyway, uh, the, the illustration, you understand like the emotional weight of that is yes. because the instinctual power of uh, wanting to conform to what is everybody else is doing. Because if you go to a fancy dress party and you're in fancy dress, you're conforming to everybody else. That was the, ex, ex, the expected norm of what everyone was doing. Norm is like a word that's used in psychology. And that's cool. But if you go to something and you're dressed differently, um, that's really weird because you're not conforming to the norm. So that thing is so deeply ingrained in our hum the human animal that we are. If you see everybody around you recycling, you'll recycle if you see everyone around you, uh, I don't know, wearing skinny jeans, you'll wear skinny jeans. If you see everyone around you starting to drive electric cars, you'll think, oh, I better drive an electric car too. I mean, that's, um, and, and in terms of if you're trying to create a message, if you give someone like a fact, like you should recycle because of carbon dioxide. 
that's like a giving someone a fact and you're thinking that this fact is going to drive the action. If you show a picture of someone recycling, someone that's like desirable, say if you really love like Ellen, the Ellen show and you see yeah. Ellen and Ellen's saying, I recycle every day, you'll, you'll immediately be like, I'll copy Ellen. Yep. That will imprint on you deeply. Like I need to be like her. I'm going to copy her. But the actual fact is not really going to, it's a very abstract way to drive, uh, to drive action. So if you were actually just designing a flyer at your not-for-profit or your Instagram feed, uh, that's like a, just a really simple incarnation of that concept that you can apply. I'm thinking about it really practically in my life right now. So we're we are a we're a vegetarian family. We've been vegetarian for a little over three years now, um, and we just cut out dairy because dairy doesn't. Yeah, we just we, there's a lot of reasons why, but even just health wise, just not feeling well, we cut out dairy. And we're slowly, I guess, heading toward becoming vegans. But either way, there's a lot of our friends that have said things and probably other people that are vegetarian or vegan, they've heard their friends say things like, and it's fine, like we're a very non-judgmental vegetarian. Like, you know, you need to be convinced of it if you're going to do, we don't try to push it on people. But they've said things like, oh, like we could never do that. We love, you know, we, we, we need meat. We love meat, blah, 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 blah. Or even with our kids, like we have, th- you know, our three kids, my son who's four, he was a baby when we started. And so he's never had meat before in his life. And he's the healthiest, you know, most jovial, fun, crazy kid ever. And so as we've gone further in this journey of vegetarianism, our friends that used to say, you know, oh, I could never do that. Like our life, them observing our life, consistently living this out, they've had less and less to say about it because all the things that they said, like, oh, you're not gonna be able to last in this or we could never do this or, you know, how, how are you gonna get your kids to do that? As we've done it now for three plus years, we've shown them the opposite, right? Instead of telling them all the benefits of a vegetarian lifestyle or, he, you know, here's our, you know, our carbon footprint is, you know, is better than yours or whatever. We get to tell them all these things, but by just showing them, it's been a way better messenger for the message than if we were just to keep, continue to shove data, you know, or shove facts down people's throats about, you know, the, the effects of this, that, or the other. Does that make sense? Yeah, totally. And I mean, you're seeing this, this whole, uh, this incredible movement of, uh, of vegan eating starting to take hold. There's all of this uh, mock meats now in the supermarket that you can't get, that you couldn't get before. I mean, I first went vegetarian when I was 13 back in the early 90s, and it was a really radical thing back then. Yep. I mean, hardly anybody. It was a really weird fringe kind of punk rock thing to do. Um, and there weren't vegetarian meals in restaurants. There weren't vegetarian restaurants at all. I mean, there was an occasional one. Uh, but it was there was no mock meats. I mean, and it just happened by one person influencing the people around them, and then that person influenced the people around them. And so your friends who thought it was like completely unviable. I mean, you're one vegan family. What happens then if they're surrounded by like ten vegan families, and then they're the only meat eating family left? They're going to be like, why are we the odd ones out? Yeah. Why are we still doing this when everyone else is doing it? Right. So people don't realize that the your environmentally friendly action is not just the measurable environmental footprint. It's also all the other people that see it. So when you take your reusable cup to uh, to Starbucks and get it refilled, every single person that sees you do that is starting to chip away at the new norm. And that's what this whole concept of the tipping point comes in, is that when people see the tipping point, that it's like they're part of the minority 
you know, if you're the weird person that takes your cup, I mean, even just eight years ago, I remember when I first started taking my own cup to coffee shops, I was totally intimidated. It was so weird to go to a barista and be like, hi, I've got this like weird plastic cup. Could you like put the coffee in my own cup? It's not dirty. I promise. I just washed it. And then it would look at me and laugh and I'd be like, really like awkward. And uh, now it's really normal. It's so normal. Yeah. it starts off being really weird then everybody gets used to it and then it tips to the point where if you're using the disposable cup, you're the odd one out, right? And then you're, you're like, oh, oh, my God, I don't want to be the odd one out. So every single behaviour that you do, you want to get as many people to watch you when people see it that's part of their mind starting to to move across to be like, hmm, I should do that because everyone else is doing it and don't want to be the odd one out. So anyway, it's just a little bit of a positive spin on doing these little actions is that they are having a much bigger impact than just the action itself. Yeah. I mean, I think it's more than just a little bit of a positive spin because I think that's the answer. Like there is a time for education and there are certain situations for it, but you're very right that in most cases, just displaying it, just doing it and for letting people observe the hopefully positive effects of that change, that thing is having on your life can and will as it grows. And as it, you know, as more people around you do it, it's, it's, it can speak way more, way louder than anything we could ever say to them. Because everything that can, everything that could possibly be said about fill in the blank, name your issue, has been said. All the documentaries are out there. All of the studies are out there. All the books, all the podcasts, all the videos, they are out there and people are still engaged in activities um, that are destroying the planet. They're destroying the things that we love around them, right? And so I, I think you're spot on that the best way forward and the, the, the best use of our time, energy, talent, skill, and life is that, uh, that value action gap, as, as you called it. Um, and all of this is in your book, right? So talk, yeah. talk about, let, let's now convince people. I don't, I, don't, I don't think we need to convince them anymore, but let's, let's talk about your book for a little bit uh, in, in the Indiegogo attached to it so that people can take what we're talking about here, go get the book and really get more of a deeper dive into all of this. Okay, well, I put all of this uh, the stuff I've learned into this 10-step design process, and it's in the book that's called How to Save the World, and it takes you through 10 steps, uh, and then each one has exercises and, like, tutorials at the end, so you can go through and do the tutorials. Um, and by the end, you should have a very thorough, uh, powerful environmental or social change campaign, either to reform maybe or enhance something you're already doing or come up with something new. A new it's great for coming up with new new ideas as well and it, it includes these concepts as well as um you know a whole bunch of others that we haven't gone into into yet uh but but one thing that it does have that i would that i think is like the essential way to cut through the value action gap uh that's described in the in the behavior chapter of the book is this thing called behavior mapping or user story mapping which is instead of jumping to a conclusion that we, oh, we have to make a documentary we have to make a book we have to make a podcast um, we have to like tell people about this thing. Don't immediately jump into that idea that you have to educate people. What you want to do is look at the behavior you want to change. So um, I've got it pretty early up in the book, this um, double page spread I've put in of these two lenses, looking through everything you want to do through the lens of measurement and behavior change. So your problem is measurable. So you want to look at the data that you're trying to change and that will unveil a whole lot of insights for you. And then the solution through the lens of human behavior, how do you actually drive 
the action. And then you just get a pen and paper and you draw like a stick figure and you're like, this is Mary. Mary wakes up in the morning and then Mary does this and then does that and then does that and then does that. And how in this flow of Mary's day are we going to get her to do the action that we want to get her to do? And so you, you go through that behaviour mapping exercise and then you're like, okay, and there could be different types of Marys, you know, different in terms of different types of people that you want to, like one could be a school teacher, one could be a corporate executive, one could be like a, um, a parent, uh, one could be an engineer, and you, you, these people have slightly different user stories um, and different actions. And then, okay, there's three actions you can do. It might be we just wanted to put the banana peel in the compost bin, right? And so you're like, well, maybe we should just give her a sign that says don't put food scraps in the compost bin. So instead of making this fancy documentary, you just give out people little signs or something like that that actually gets right into the behaviour itself. You know, we make a big face. It's like, no, you know. Yep. Um, so every time they look at it, they're like, oh, geez, oh, better not put my banana in it, you know. That will actually, that's addressing the behaviour, right? And then you build up your project from there, you know, or your app, whatever you want to do. And that it's entirely focused on changing this, uh, catalyzing this action or catalyzing this behavior that drives the numbers. And that's where you'll get really great ideas from that actually change the world. So you won't just be living in this bubble of being a social change entrepreneur that's like working all the time and just not changing anything. I mean, there's so many. The reason why I wrote this book is because I just see so many people trying to change the world who actually are not measurably changing the world. They're trying really yep. hard. And these are whole organizations as well, like not just, I mean, multi-million dollar funded organizations who are just, when you ask them, where's the evidence that you're actually creating real and measurable change? I mean, they just can't come up with it because a lot of people are just like spinning their wheels, right? But then you've got some organizations that are actually really making change happen. And there's, it's a strategy, it's a technique, right, to actually get it to work. And it's it's learnable and it's teachable. Uh, but behavior mapping if you haven't done a behavior map yet look it up on the internet you can see it in my book as well um get your pen and paper and just map out the behavior it's like it's going to be the skeleton for how you build up something that works that's really beautiful i love that and so this is going to come out middle to the the second half of october and you're going to have an indiegogo tell us about that yeah, I'm launching an Indiegogo this coming Monday, which when people are listening will probably be two weeks in the in the past. Uh, so, yeah, on the 15th of October it launches, so it should run until the end of November. Yeah, and you can jump onto the Indiegogo and you can get one of the first copies of the book, How to Save uh, the World, digital, audio book and in print. It looks really great in hardcover. I just got a hardcover sample and it looks really um, fancy. It's in full colour. Uh, it's got lots of beautiful diagrams, lots of inspirational uh, uh, quotes and, and kind of stories of to, to try and really get you uh, to see changing the world as uh, your greatest creative project. I mean, that's one thing that sort of wraps up the book. I mean, the book is a 10-step kind of fairly sort of objective technique-based um, kind of manual or, or textbook, but it's kind of enclosed in this wrapping of uh, something that's very dear to my heart is when you look at changing the world as your your life's greatest artwork, your life's greatest creative project, that it's something that you can apply your own unique creative genius to to build wonderful things and the world needs our ideas and our innovations uh, and our best creative energy to come up with all the solutions that the world needs. It doesn't need us to be like, you know, freaked out and crazy and negative and, you know, on the on the attack. It really needs us to, to look within ourselves to come up with um 
the solutions that are going to change the world. So I'm, I'm really, really into this, uh, bringing creative energy into the, into the movement and making it something that's really positive rather than the, the doom and gloom. Really moved on from the doom and gloom environmental scene. This conversation was more than I could have hoped and dreamed for. I think there's some really, really key takeaways here for my life, for the, those listening. And I hope that uh, I'm, I'm shifting my attention to those listening right now. I hope that you will go, we'll have the Indiegogo information in the show notes, or you can just go Google it. I'm sure it'll come up. Katie Patrick, How to Save the World, Indiegogo. Just Google it. It'll come up by the time this is out and get that book, get on, get on board, because I think there's some really key ways that we can actually, you know, tangibly change the world and measurably, right? We, we don't have to, we're not going to reiterate everything we just talked about, but I think that's such a key, key thing that's, that's happening in this conversation is being able to measure it in the data that is going to encourage us and encourage others to get in on, uh, yeah, get in on the action of, yeah, changing the world. So super, super fun. Um, we'll put all that in the show notes. Katie, before we wrap up, I have an important question for you that I always end all of our podcasts on. The situation that we're envisioning right now is that someday you are going to die. Hopefully, it's many, 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 many decades and years from now. I remember you asking this in your other yes. episodes. <laughs> it's, it's, it's always fascinating to see like where people go when they do this. Uh, I've already done, you're my third podcast of the day, and it's been fun to see the different answers that I've gotten. Really? You do today. three in one day? Oh, my God. I, I, <laughs> it really depends, honestly. Um, sometimes I do one-offs, and sometimes I do five in a day just to kind of pack them all in. Um, so if you've heard this before, then you're going to die someday. And hypothetically speaking, I've been asked in this hypothetical scenario, I've been asked to give your eulogy and everyone is there. Uh, you mentioned that you have a kid, all the people that you've worked with and that you've worked for and that all the people that have worked under you, everybody's there to honor and mourn and celebrate your life. What do you hope if I had to speak the words over your life, things that about your, if I'm talking about your legacy in your life, what do you hope that I would say on that day? Uh, I think that the lasting impression I would like to have on the world through my uh, work, I mean, I do get into a lot of technical stuff and technical design, but there's a reason why underneath all of it. And it is the, uh, it's just, wanting to bring creative energy into the world to make the world a better place. And if I could help people get in touch with that, you know, underneath all of this, underneath all the layers of the, the legislation and the science and the data, underneath all of it is a almost like a spiritual connection with being in touch with the, the kind of like creative energy of the universe and wanting to channel that into making the world a better place, wanting to give, give, positive energy, give creative energy, heal things, make things more beautiful. Uh, and I always try and realign myself with that energy when I feel like I'm kind of stepping past it. I have a bad day or something stresses me out or I don't feel right about things. I just, in my inner self, come back into alignment with that, um, that purpose, that purpose of channeling creative energy to make the world better. And I would like to, if I could imprint that a little bit, on every person that I come into contact with, that I could help them also do that more because I think we all need to do it more. And I think that's where the magic of life and kind of what we're here for, that's kind of the purpose of life, is to, um, to kind of channel that through us and do good things, creative, positive things in the world with that energy. 
um, sort of like scattering a bit of like glitter over everybody. I mean, if I could spiritual glitter over everybody, I don't want to become like a spiritual teacher or a guru, uh, but I would like to um, just help um, hatch that open in people that don't have it hatched or if they do have it hatched, hatch it open a bit more, get it out. Because I think when we all live in that way, that's when things really start to um, become beautiful and to grow and we can all sort of get into that flow a lot more. So if, yeah, if people could go remembering me, just thinking, wow, Katie really helped me get in touch with my creative energy and use it for good. And I, I actually did something with it. I, I started something or I wrote a poem or I um, enrolled in a course or I just felt better through thinking that way. I would like to have that, that imprint on people. You're the first person that's ever used the words spiritual glitter over everyone. I love that. I, 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 actually, oh I, actually, I actually really, really love that picture. I'm like envisioning that in my head right now. No, that's I've never said great. it before. I've never said it before to anybody. <laughs> I don't Sprinkle know. spiritual glitter. No, that's super great. It's, I mean, it's a great picture. That would be a great legacy. That would be a great way to inspire everybody that you come in contact with. Um, and that's a great note to end on because I think people will, th this conversation, Katie, to be completely honest, was absolutely fascinating. And uh, I'm excited to, I will be getting in on the Indiegogo. I'm excited to, you know, share this with other people, try to get them in on it. And I'm excited to just keep up with what you're doing. I, I want to, you know, stay in touch. And like, I think you're, you're, you're bound there's no way that you don't continue to have an impact on people with the kinds of things that you're focusing on and the ways that you want to impact the world. So keep on going. We're cheering you on. I'm cheering you on. And I hope we can do this again soon. Oh, and I just want to say to everybody who's like in the scene, just don't get caught up in the doom and gloom. Don't let it get you down. When something you see bad happens on the news, just don't let it in. Get into your own creativity. That's the answer. You know, that, that is the answer. When you look inside yourself for your creative energy and how to use it. That's what you have to stay positive with. I mean, yeah, not this whole like constant fiascos in the world. I mean, getting upset about them is not going to save the world. It's true. It's very true. It's very true. Well, thank you again, even for that last little bit. That's a great, 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 great way to end our conversation. Let's do it again soon. Yeah, yeah. Thank you so much for having me on the show. It was an absolute pleasure. And um, I hope everybody enjoyed the episode. Wow, right? I know you learned some valuable stuff from Katie, and I hope you'll take some action today. Not tomorrow, not the next day, today. For all links and information regarding this particular podcast conversation with Katie, and for links to her Indiegogo for her book, which is now live, head on over to podcast.letsgiveadam.com for the show notes. As of right now, her project is 32% backed. Let's make that number go up, Let's Give a Damn family. For everyone out there, thanks for all the ways you continue to support this show. Keep going. Tell a friend. Leave a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Give a dollar or five at patreon.com forward slash let's give a damn. That truly, truly helps us. You're awesome. This podcast was edited by the incredible Chad Snavely. Music is by our amazing friend, Propaganda. And thanks once again for joining me. I love you all. Same day, same time next week. Bye for now.